Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Our New Testament reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Hear now a word from God. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We don't know her name. We don't know where she comes from. We don't know why she appears in this synagogue on this Sabbath day. A tired yet resilient woman, mostly resigned to her fate. A woman bent over. I can picture her completely unable to stand up. A woman who spent her long, tedious days over the past 18 years staring at the ground, gazing at her own two feet, rubbernecking at the sandals of the people walking on the street beside her. And it's not because she wants to avoid eye contact or miss the day's sunrise or forget what the moon looks like or never raise her face to the evening's breeze, but because she has no other choice. She cannot stand up straight. It's a long, exhausting ordeal, I imagine, to live life hunched over, looking at the world sideways. Was it osteoporosis? We don't know. I wonder if anybody noticed her in the sanctuary that morning. I wonder what hope or purpose or comfort she drew from worship that day. I wonder, was this her home synagogue, her home church? We don't know. Wonder what home life was like. Did she have a family, children? Did she live alone? We don't know. According to Luke, the woman makes no request of Jesus for help. Surrounded by a crowd, Jesus is teaching. She doesn't approach him or does not ask him a question. Who knows if she even notices Jesus, bitten down as she is, but, but he sees her. Jesus sees her. He calls her up out of the crowd and into the spotlight, and he says, 
The same thing he always says when he meets the broken, the sick, the dying, the dead. Woman, you are free from your ailment. And next the story tells us Jesus laid his hands on her and immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. The second line has burned a hole in my soul for the last few weeks. It's powerful. Immediately she stood up and began praising God. So I wonder, I have to wonder if this unnamed woman bent over when she was finally able to stand up straight. I wonder if she didn't recite the words of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless God's holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all God's benefits, who forgives your inequity, who heals all your disease, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live, so their youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So use your imagination and for an instant, see how this once bent over woman could sense now in her standing up straight body every single one of these beliefs about God. In a moment of brilliance, we're given a glimpse into this true sense of what it means to praise God. The Psalms for her are not just words on a page. They're shouts of the soul, embodied bursts of faith, tweets of truth. For when faith is challenging, when faith is uplifting, and everything in between. That the woman is not just healed of her disability. She also has the presence of mind to identify who is responsible. And so for her there is no other response but praise. The Lord God offers justice and joy for all who are broken and weighed down, excluded, including her. Miriam Therese Winter, the theologian and writer, says this about this woman. Surely, O Lord, you meant when you lifted her up long ago. To your praise, compassionate one, not one woman only, but all women bent by unbending ways. The line haunts and shatters us all. Immediately she stood up and began praising God. It stands out because I'm not used to the church where to be the place where the crippled, the hunched, shattered people are encouraged and welcomed and free to stand up straight. Especially people who are marginalized and excluded by those who hold power and authority in and out. People of color, women, immigrants, the LGBTQ community, the homeless, the students, the poor, the elderly, the young, the mentally ill, the incarcerated, the differently abled, the spiritually wrecked, the uneducated. And I must admit, it's with some sense of responsibility and disgrace that I say this. Why don't I imagine the church to be the place where people unable to stand up can come to be unbent and to stand up straight and to be restored fully in body, mind, and spirit and reach their full potential as God's child? 
Why is it when I imagine the church do I picture people still bent down, crippled under the burden of shame and judgment and invisibility, of legalism and unhealthy theology, of shallow faith? Is St. Augustine correct to allegorize the whole human race is like this woman, bent over and bowed down to the ground? It's our good question for today. But tellingly, the second half of this gospel story offers us an answer. As soon as Jesus unbinds this bent-over woman, the leader of the synagogue voices displeasure and indignation. His criticism drowns out her joyful praise. There are six days on which work ought to be done, he says. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath. The Presbyterian minister and poet Ann Weems observed that we have so many rules that we don't have space for dancing. Our graffiti is defiling the house of God. God's graffiti is different. God writes love upon our hearts. So some night, let's sneak into the sanctuary and paint over all the rules and write God's graffiti on the walls. Love, 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 and love. So there's more to this story, isn't there? Along with healing the woman, Jesus rebuts those who scold him for healing on the Sabbath. This is a distinctive Jesus performance, lifting up the humble while knocking the mighty ones off their thrones, making an arrogant rebuke with a very direct reproof of his own, turning people's expectations upside down, Mercy wins, hypocrisy loses. The story's reversal of fortunes is worthy of our delight because it allows the crowds, and us really, to experience God's grace directly through the healing work of Christ. Those who earnestly seek to expand God's intentions for our broken world may rejoice at the demotion of the haughty. But such rejoicing can also be driven by intense pride, and it can harden into vindictive judgment. Yeah, you tell them Jesus, we say, can simply slide into, yeah, let's see them all suffer. People we disagree with become enemies to be bested. Our vindication requires the punishment of those we consider to be wrong about God or about how we worship or about our politics. If the promotion of the losers requires the downgrading of the winners, we find ourselves on a constantly shifting seesaw of glory and shame. We always try to be on the side that's rising, with our enemies riding the sinking side to the ground. This process grounds relationships and judgment rather than mercy. Surely there are times when judgment is the most generous response, when evil is so flagrant that it must be crushed. But such times are infrequent. Evil is often more insidious. And our desires for our opponents to be humbled may be inconsistent with what actually happened. We may not even know who the real enemy is. We may find that there is a little bit of antagonist in our dearly beloved ones and even in ourselves. So when the seesaw shifts, whoever's on top at that moment may need to be brought down. Not into shame, 
or punishment, where reality is more complicated than that. So I imagine that this anonymous, stooped-over woman stands erect and takes in the whole wide world around her. She sees more than just the kind eyes of a sister or friend or fluffy white clouds in the sky. She also sees the extent of suffering and injustice in the world, the wide margins that are home to the most vulnerable, to the depth of disease and distress. She sees that she's been raised up into a broken and distressed world. She stands now tall and confident, erect and deferring to no one. But her perspective includes a new responsibility and new uncertainty. It calls for a broader compassion for deeper engagement. Freed from her disease, she's free to serve a world in profound need. Standing tall and facing the world directly, she's prepared to carry even a heavier cross. There's a marvelous NPR interview with Ben Matlin, a quadriplegic, quadriplegic and a writer and a keen observer of the human condition who has blogged and spoken widely about the giftedness of disability. He once attended the funeral of a friend, another quadriplegic, where the sermon envisioned how his wheelchair-bound friend would now be able to jump up and run around in heaven. Matlin says that he was mortified and explained, are there no wheelchairs in heaven? I'm not buying it. For me, if there was a heaven, it's not a place where I'm able to walk. It's a place where it doesn't matter if you can't. Once, while walking our Labradors along the Huron River, we came upon a line of seesaws of teeter-totters in the park, and we watched with no small amusement as an entire family joyously played on this line of giant toys. Peals of laughter and hoots of delight filled the air as Grandmothers played with their grandkids, and teenagers actually talked with their parents. And small pint-sized kids played with oversized adults. Great energy and joy filled the air. And it reminds us that our reality is that they were always simultaneously being stooped down and lifted up. And that's a good thing, I think, for it follows the example that Jesus set for us, that Exaltation is a crucifixion, and his glory is humbly being weighted down with shame. As Jesus' followers, we too bear the responsibilities of letting ourselves be stooped down under the cross of Christ, even as God's grace continuously lifts us up. So what does it mean today to be uplifted in glory and stooped in humility? It may be declined to wish dreadful things upon the public figures who make ill-informed remarks about immigrants, and instead working to bring those immigrants into a more fair, just, and sustainable relationship, and to stand against the political and economic systems from which we all profit. It may be letting go of our beliefs about the right way to worship, the right way to pray, the right way to live, the right kind of politics. Instead, we might be listening for the whisperings of the Spirit, even if that voice comes from someone we don't much like. It may mean changing our perspective so that the person we regarded as enemy, we see as a child of God. 
reading this healing story. Our tendency is to side with Jesus and the woman in the crowds and against Jesus' opponents, and even to be glad about their shame. After all, they're wrong, and Jesus is right, and when someone is suffering, healing is more important than the letter of the law, right? Worship is at its best when it transforms us and lifts us up into a new life, not when it maintains our status quo. But perhaps instead of rejoicing in one person's exultation over the other, we might aim for a realistic kindness and a sort of healing in this complex and wrecked world where everyone needs to be simultaneously exalted and humbled. Perhaps mercy could swap places with judgment. And in our assessment of the women and men who appear to be our opponents, we're aiming, aiming rather than to be lifted up, while our opponents are dropped down. No matter how tall that we stand, when we notice the person next to us stoop down, we might take on some of her burden without judging her worthiness. Perhaps that's where the real healing begins. But whatever you do, don't mistake this story about a woman with a debilitating spinal condition as just another healing story. It's about more than Jesus astounding people with his power and confounding his adversaries. It's not a story about power embarrassing weakness. It's not a story about new things replacing the old. At its core, at its core it's a story about what God intends for us and for the world around us. It's about the urgency of seeing God's intentions for justice, mercy, and hope brought to pass without delay. This next Wednesday, August the 28th, will mark the 56th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. It was, you'll remember, that on that march that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King delivered his I Have a Dream speech. And I've been thinking about that event more than 50 years ago and thinking about this bent over woman in Luke's gospel story. And I've been thinking about how the two connect and about how the connection is that power of urgency with which Jesus heals this woman in the midst of a worship service. And I was thinking about that time in our American history when an entire race of people was invisible or made invisible by race and segregation. And I was thinking about the hope that Dr. King and other civil rights leaders offered to a people whose backs had been bent for so long by racism and poverty and joblessness and inequality. And I was thinking about the first steps of healing that flowed from that event. And I was thinking about the intersection of this time in our life when the rhetoric seems to be so oppressive. As you may be aware too, it's been some 400 years this month since the transatlantic slave trade first brought enslaved American, African people to North America. Today, bells will be ringing across our country at 3 p.m. for four minutes to mark this 400th anniversary period. Here at Michigan, the university at the Burton Tower, the bells in the Carillion will ring out, and many, many people will join in. People in our community are all invited to come and to ring the bells themselves and to mark this particular moment and to gain again a sense of the urgency with which God calls us into being. In his epic speech, Dr. King spoke 
frequently of the fierce urgency of now in response to critic who said that the time was not now, not right yet to address civil rights. I think that Jesus felt the fierce urgency of now for this bent over woman and for all people who carry burdens. What is the fierce urgency of now for us this day? All who have bent and crippled for so long, who needs to be freed by God and by us. That is our work today and every day. For we are the people of God cast into the world to bring mercy, compassion, peace, and justice. So let us go now and do what God has set before us with a sense of urgency. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. Let us continue on in a spirit of prayer. Let us pray. In the quiet of these moments, Holy One, we know that you see everything, that you see everything that is within us. Our appreciation for another day, for family and friends, for rest, for the growth of our gardens, those lucky enough to have ripe tomatoes and knobby squash, but also the growth of life's gardens that we tenderly cultivate, the gardens of home and hearth, family and friends, vocation and vacation. Amidst all that is good, you know our heaviest burdens, our cherished dreams, and our lingering regrets. You are acquainted with all our ways, the judgmental thoughts we cannot overcome, the temptations that are too close, our fear of failure when opportunities are presented to us, our hunger for prosperity and a safety net, even while we carry genuine compassion for those with nothing. When sorrow comes in the seasons of loss, you sit with us in sadness, your grace catching us from a fall into despair. We wonder how it is that you can know us so well and love us so unconditionally and fully. Though we know well the routine and the common journey of our lives, we perceive your living, active word shaping us and setting us free from the predictable, allowing us to stand up Receive the fullness of our gratitude, we pray, as we try to express it this day, this gratefulness. And we try to express it in the way we measure out this day and our week ahead, in the choices we make, the words we speak, the ones we choose to withhold, the people we touch and the laughter we share. See us, we pray, put away pettiness, leave behind negativity, release our need to control everything. We love you and we want our love for you to be genuine, to take on skin and be known by those around us. We do recognize your faithful goodness and extraordinary mercy and we cling to it, but our faith seizes up at times, retreats even, at the bitter reality of suffering and hunger and injustice and depression. Where one combat operation ends, another seems to worsen where one natural disaster is more manageable, another becomes more horrific, where one person's cancer enters remission. We hear of another we love who is coping with the diagnosis. We attend the wedding while we grieve a divorce. We welcome new babies into our family even as we gather to celebrate eternal life given for the ones we have loved. 
Forgive our fickle trust. Bring a peaceful path for us to take in this back and forth of a complicated world. Bring healing, we are bold to pray. Heal whatever in us that does not help your children to have food, clean water, health, and opportunity. Heal the spirit in us that gets stuck or is downsized in the give and take of the world. Come in power to the places most desperate for divine intervention. In your healing way, through your divine power, lay your hand upon the world in need and upon each of us. Come with strength to those engaged in challenges that seem overwhelming. Come with perspective for those for whom little frustrations have sapped their appreciation for the wonders of this beautiful world. Show us how to help and give us an eagerness to partner with you that overcomes our natural inertia. Gracious God, you speak in a prayer that is full of words. We need your sacred word for us. Open a way to us that we might take time to listen to you now in the silence. Gather all these prayers, our silent prayers and the prayers yet unknown to us into your loving heart, as together we pray your sacred words. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.